0: Mental health field. You made it seem like it's all in your it's head. All in
1: your the head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental Can't health. Can't have a
0: profit the mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
1: Today we are going to talk about race and racism and the bigger kind of macroeconomic, political, systemic picture, and down to the micro level, which is more kind of your feelings, your. The personal, the interpersonal, the relational, and the reason for this is probably somewhat obvious. The murder of George Floyd a few weeks ago, resulting in really unprecedented uprisings around the country, every major city in the U.S. having, you know, some of the biggest protests we've ever seen against racism and police brutality. Uh, we figured it'd be a pretty good idea for us to talk about that, um, and. We wanted to also give a brief disclaimer that um, although we're therapists, we have fancy letters next to our name and we read lots of books and whatnot. We um, we are also just two white people talking about racism. So um, we can't pretend from a perspective of lived experience. We know what it's like to be pulled over by the police while being black or what it's like to experience various uh, forms of discrimination while black.
0: I'm going to talk about the bigger picture of why, you know, why you have racism in the first place. What are the economic benefits? What are the psychological benefits? What's happened here? And how come America is exploding? And so one of the things that I want to say is that race and capitalism are Siamese twins. They really are fused at the hip. And that's because capitalism is prone to downturns. Capitalists get greedy. They keep expanding without any idea of where this will result, and it results in recessions and depressions. We've had three since the year 2000. The year 2000, we had what was called the dot-com crisis recession. Then in 2008, we had the mortgage crisis recession. And now in 2020, we have the COVID crisis recession. They're not called the capitalist recession, for obvious reasons, but are given the names of the phenomena that were outstanding. Now, um, in these downturns, it's mainly minorities that suffer and suffer first. We can certainly see this in the 2020, as well as we could see it in the 2008, when it's mainly people of color who lost their homes. In the subprime mortgage crisis, why why pick a group? Well, it's very convenient for capitalism because we have these cycles of boom and then bust. It's very convenient to have a group that you can fire first, a group to which you could you decided are the first to lose their jobs, and you rationalize that with racism so that people will not feel united as black and white afflicted together, which they do now for reasons I'll explain, but because you can, it's them, it's those lazy blacks or it's those whatever expendable black people who are kind of like a safety valve for capitalism and therefore very convenient to keep the capitalist system going so workers don't unite either on the job or unite in saying these crises throw us out of work. We don't want this system. We don't want capitalism anymore. And the way it works is since blacks are the first fired, it's much harder for them to ever get seniority. It's harder for them to accumulate wealth. And where they do, as in the mortgage crisis, they're wiped out because their fortunes are, are more fragile. And so they, they are the convenient group. And then after you plunge them into financial misfortune and into family misfortune, because if a black man can't support his family, he's humiliated as a man and is more likely to leave. The family's more likely to fall apart and that's considered black pathology. In the 1960s, Moynihan wrote about the black family, that it's basically a locus of pathology because of these sinful, shiftless men. Then Charles Murray, in the um, just about 2000, wrote that it's white workers who are shiftless and lazy, and that's why white families are falling apart. Meanwhile, it's because white workers jobs were exported, that they didn't get family wages. But that was a capitalist analogy, that there's something, it's a capitalist analysis, there's something wrong with them morally. And so you have the reinforcements, once you put racism in place, you reinforce it, and you have a lack of solidarity among American workers who feel like oh, them, you know, of course they don't have a job, and they don't identify. It's also harder to unionize if black and white are not together. It's one of the reasons that Martin Luther King said that unionization is the best anti-poverty program, and that he was an honorary member of the Longshoremen's Union, because they were one of the powerful unions that that unionized black and white together with the same salaries. And they did that in part because blacks were used as strikebreakers because they weren't allowed in the union. And in part because that union movement was headed by Dellums, who was in the American Communist Party. And um, it was also headed by A. Philip Randolph, who was a socialist, who felt ideologically that we need unity of the working class. And Martin Luther King died when he was helping the sanitation workers of Memphis organize because he believed that unity was so very important. And capitalism, he was anti-capitalist before he was killed as well, King was. And that capitalism divides workers and that and conquers them.
1: So years ago... Uh, I ended up acquiring a, a giant stack of books on racism, and so today I was looking over a few of them. And one of the most fascinating I ever picked up was called Fatal Invention by Dorothy Roberts. Just in the introduction when she talks about the invention of race historically, it had everything to do with what Harriet's talking about from the last century, except this was in the mid to late 1600s. So what Dorothy Roberts was talking about are that the origins of race that The the plantation class during the 1600s initially had not just subjugated uh, African slaves to um, permanent uh, forms of chattel slavery of property of uh, plantation owners. They enslaved whoever they could conveniently find to make slaves. And during that time, Europeans who'd been convicted of some kind of crime were brought over from Europe to also be made slaves. The status of slavery wasn't exactly the same, I think, um, African slavery was way more brutal in most ways that you can define historically. But one of the most interesting things that happened, I think, in 1676 was the Bacon's Rebellion. And the name of that might ring a bell for some people from, you know, history class at some point. But what happened was uh, white slave, essentially slaves, white slaves and black slaves or servants maybe, uh, rose up together to literally burn down the plantation and, um, and ironically, this is actually pretty messed up. Part of it was because they were trying to aggressively argue to the plantation owners to do something about um, taking over more Indian land for some reason. Uh, and I'm not quite sure why. So maybe there's this weird sort of like uh, anti-Native American racism that was happening in, in connection to the, the unification between white and black slaves. But uh, as a result of this, the plantation class got together as a unified group and said, we cannot let this kind of thing ever happen again. And so from there, they started creating really aggressive laws that defined <clears throat> who the whites were and who the blacks were. Uh, and they defined this in, like, in legal language in ways that did not exist before. So previously, there wasn't a such thing as white people. There were like the Irish and the Scottish and the Germans and, and whoever. Uh, but they realized that if we, if we kind of throw a bone to the whites and say, well, hey, you will benefit if you get this, this and this from us. Uh, like, you know, you'll be a slave for this period of time, but then you can own this amount of land and, and you can own uh, black slaves and, and things like that. This was then codified into law for decades and then centuries, and it, and it established what we now call race. So, uh, you know, 400 years ago, uh, white people and black people, before they were called white people and black people, were uniting against a common enemy, which was the plantation class, who were the capitalists who were exploiting them for unpaid labor in order for those uh, capitalists to not have to work, so they could just accrue, accrue wealth through the labor of other people without having to pay them, so this isn't uh, this isn't a new idea of people of other backgrounds uniting together to fight against a common enemy. Um, in fact, it's it's as natural and organic of a you know part of history as anything else. But we typically don't hear about this history. So I just wanted to throw that in there as a historical. Like, you know, fun fact for some context of how we got to where we are.
0: Yeah, it's a very important thing that when a group wants to exploit another group, they can't say they're just like us, only we happen to capture them. So too bad for them, even though their feelings are just like ours, and even though they have the same needs and wants just like us, they have to decide they're inferior. I remember reading how the British, while looting Ireland, and putting their people to work for almost nothing, regarded them as white chimpanzees and of inferior intellect, of outrageous sexual appetites, and of moral degeneration, because that allowed them to exploit the Irish. And the same thing goes with African slavery, only it was convenient to then bring out the black and white for reasons that Max specified really well, which is you don't want the unity of workers, that's for sure. You want to keep people divided according to race, something that Martin Luther King in one of his speeches said that Pharaoh in Egypt was worried because... He had a lot of slaves, and there weren't as many rulers as slaves, so he made racial divisions between his different slaves to keep them fighting each other and not him. Now, of course, there's also psychological benefits, which you can see right now. You can see how poor people fight against their own interest, which is to unite As poor people and as working people and middle class people against the 1% that is profiting from them. But they identify as white instead of as workers, which gives them a sense, at least I'm superior to someone. I may be underpaid. I may be unemployed. I may lose everything, but at least I'm white. It gives them a level of superiority, which men used to have. At least I'm a man. I don't have to do domestic labor. I don't have to take care of kids because I'm the man and my organs give me supremacy over this inferior person who is my wife and who does all the housework and sex work and child care and emotional labor in my house. These are very dangerous divisions because they keep people from the solidarity that they need. Because what we have is we have the work that keeps the world go round. What they have is the money, which, as we could see from Trump and the 1% urging us all to go back to work, even if it's in COVID infested meatpacking plants, doesn't matter. They need labor. They need our labor. And that's what we have. And so that's what we need to have together in solidarity. Max, I think it would help if you then talked about the micro aspect of racism.
1: So you can talk about systemic and institutional racism, and then you can talk about interpersonal racism. You can talk about this somewhat newer concept of uh, microaggressions. I mean, it's, it's at least the term is a little bit newer. Uh, so let me just break down what these things are real quick. So um, a stereotype is... And it, this might be obvious to some listeners, but maybe it's not. So, a stereotype is like, you know, all people of X group, you know, do this, believe this, feel this way, or whatever. It's a it's a generalized statement, usually with a negative attribution, sometimes a positive attribution. Like a positive one could be like, Asians are good at math, right? Um, so that's a that's a stereotype, and that could actually have a really negative effect on Asians because of let's say you find the one Asian. Or so even right there, that's like showing that I, I probably just showed a bias saying, Like, oh, there's one Asian that isn't good at math. But like, let's say, let's say, like you know, you find an Asian American who's like bad at math. So now there's a standard based on the stereotypes embedded within the culture that people think there's something wrong with this person because they're bad at math, right? So even a positive uh, stereotype can have some you know kind of negative um, emotional um, effects on them, and maybe some ripple ripple effects in their life that causes some harm to them. But then there's the more obvious negative stereotypes like. I don't know, either black people being stupid or black people being um, like aggressive or something like that. And then, but, then, but then you could say, okay, well, white liberal guy, what about stereotypes against white people? Isn't that bad too? Um, so, you know, white people can't dance. Like, okay, so those would be stereotypes about white people. So if you just look at stereotypes, those are generally a cognitive phenomenon. They're, they're sort of like intellectual concepts. You can kind of language in your mind, um, but they're usually kind of held within a culture enough to where it's a belief because if I have a stereotype in my head, but it doesn't reflect anything that anybody else thinks, it probably doesn't hold a lot of weight. But if mm-hmm. everybody in society, especially people with more power within a society, especially if people within power um, with positions of actual authority over other people have those stereotypes, okay, that has some negative impacts. Prejudice is um, it's a prejudgment, um, a prejudice isn't necessarily cognitive. It can be like a judgment can be, um, cognitive. Meaning if I believe, for example, like black men are, uh, scary or like aggressive or something, um, and I'm in an elevator and, uh, for a split second, black guy gets in the elevator and I take like a subtle step back in the elevator. Um, maybe it's because of the belief, but, from my understanding, the research on this stuff is usually that it's not so explicit, like the, the cognitive isn't super strong. Like you ask most people that might either clutch their purse or step away or, or a guy that might like clench his fist because he's like, oh, no, I might have to fight. They're usually not aware of that. And that's this concept of implicit bias. So a, a prejudgment is like you've already judged the person as having some sort of attribute. And that's usually a little bit more emotional. So in that sense, the emotion of fear just sort of strikes you in a split second. So fear of black men and that's tied to the stereotype, right? So like all black men are scary and mean and aggressive paired with the emotion of fear resulting in this really, really quick behavior where you like you take a quick step back or you, you clench your fists or something like that. Cause you're ready to fight now. Um, so then that results in this concept that people call microaggression where you haven't done anything horrific or traumatizing per se to this black dude that just stepped into the, uh, the elevator you just took a step back, or if, you know maybe for a lady holding your purse, you just held your purse a little bit closer, right? Not a huge deal, right? Imagine being the black guy and you you happen to be like the most gentle, passive, kind, uh, compassionate uh, human in the world, and you experience this a thousand times a day every time you walk into a new room, you see white people appear to be afraid. Uh, you notice that a police officer seems to glance at you for a much longer period of time than he's glancing at other white people. Um, throughout your life, through, through school, when you were in public school, you found that um, the uh, the white kids that raised their hand got called on by the other white teachers, like 95% of the time. 5% of the time, they called on you when you raised your hand. So this kind of stuff really can, can build up psychologically, uh, not just for, say, like the black man, or we're just using, you know, this is a hypothetical black man who has experienced these kinds of things, uh, it could be any other per You can kind of slot the different identity pieces too. It doesn't have to be black men. It could be like, I don't know, uh, like lesbian, Latina woman, um, with a shaved head, you know, you like, whatever a person in a wheelchair, like, you, you know, you can go through the sort of identity checkbox list things here and you can start breaking down these, these micro pieces of, um, if people believe, um, inaccurate things about people, whether they're positive or negative, if they have these sort of embedded um, negative feelings or irrationally positive feelings too. Like, you know, what if you're like, Oh, well black people are so good at singing and dancing whatever. Then like every time you see a black person, you're like, Oh man, I'm just going to start dancing in front of this guy. Cause black people are going <laughs> to dance. It's like, you know, and there's, and there's this black lady just being like, I don't know what the hell you're doing. This, you this is such bizarre behavior and I'm so tired of white people thinking that they can like jive and shit with me. Um, when like, I really hate dancing. <laughs> so, um, so these are the micro pieces. <clears throat> and so this is, I, I feel weird about this because I spent so many years being so um, I wanted to get this stuff right so bad. And that's why I'm relatively okay at explaining this. Like I kind of memorize this stuff, like as if it's off of a, a PowerPoint or something, but, and I've explained this to so many white people. Cause I used to feel like I was on a crusade of saying, I got to educate these damn whites the whites like me, they're oppressing, uh, people of color. Um, very good intentions. But I, I would say over the years, I, I led, um, reading groups with other white people, uh, starting with a book called why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria by the, uh, uh black psychologist, woman named uh, Beverly Totham. it is a really, really good book. I do recommend it actually, but I think back of all those years and then I look at what's going on today and I'm just like, man, like what I was doing didn't do shit, you know? It really didn't make a dent in racism. You know, like the housing market is still screwed for black people. Police are still killing black people disproportionately. And there's just the list goes on. You can look at every statistic and it's just, things are just going to keep getting worse. Um, I mean, there there are a lot of gains too that I think um, I forgot who pointed this out to me, but also over the last 50 years or so, there is a higher proportion of um, black people who kind of moved from uh, that had more class mobility. I mean, You know, I don't know if there's like more Oprah's per se, but like, I don't know, there's like more black millionaires today than there were like 10 or 20 years ago or something like that. I don't have the stats on hand, but going back to, uh, to Dorothy Roberts book, um, Fatal Invention, something else she touches on during the really early stages of the abolition movement, when the plantation class was still just had a chokehold on, on everything political and economic, um, you know, arguably they still do. We just don't call them, call it the plantation class anymore. Uh, the early phase um, abolitionists felt pretty uncomfortable about freed slaves initially because it created this weird dilemma where they said well should our effort to be just to try to create an underground railroad to free as many slaves as we can in order for them to be able to enter into this same economic system so that they can own other people as property so that they can then prosper and the conclusion that the, you might guess that they came to was well no because the economic system itself is so unjust We don't want to continue perpetuating such a system. We want to abolish slavery as a whole. We don't want to just give uh, a handful of slaves the ability to uh, opt out of the system and then uh, exploit other people through it for their own personal gain. So that kind of goes back to the issue we're talking about now. Um, Maybe you can eliminate some bias here and uh, kind of create a little bit more education, uh, to reverse the effects of harmful negative stereotypes. But if the larger scale macro stuff doesn't get dealt with it, it's, it's not going to make, um, a very big dent, a a black studies professor I had who like, God, she, she really changed my life. Um, uh, Stephanie Batiste, uh, she, I think she still teaches at, um, UCSB, we, were, we had a long kind of email chain about a few things one time and, and um, I, I had some remark to her of saying, well, you know, the, obviously the, the system change is a lot more important than the, the personal and the interpersonal. So I'm going to be focusing more on that as I kind of grow into my anti-racist identity or whatever. And she replied saying, well, I, I wouldn't say that it's more important. And um, <clears throat> I'll get into this in a moment of why, why the interpersonal and, and the micro does matter a lot. I also just want to preface this with saying I just don't exactly know what to do about it because I haven't seen any great solutions to it. So I'm going to review for a moment a PowerPoint slide. I'm just going to kind of like scroll through it and uh, say what I think is interesting from it. So if anybody's interested, they can go to um, the California Association of Marriage Family Therapists website, which is uh, camft.org. And there is a PowerPoint, it's pretty easily accessible, you can just find it on the, um, click around on the, the main website. They have a section called uh, Black Minds Matter, You know, obviously it's a play on Black Lives Matter. It's by um, a black MFT, or I think it's a PhD, uh, his name is Luke Wood, and um, it's a really, really long PowerPoint, it's like 60 uh, slides, so I'm not going to go over it extensively. But some of the most fascinating problems he presents have to do with um, the school to prison pipeline. And that term refers to, uh, you know, black youth and black men in particular. It includes Latino men, but black men way disproportionately. They enter school. They're at a young age. They're in, uh, you know, elementary school, middle school. Uh, Cops are on campus. Something like 85 to 95 percent of teachers are white in like most schools in America. These tiny pieces of implicit bias end up having impacts, which are... And I'll see if I can, I can find it. He kind of def- defines implicit bias for a while for folks that don't know what that is. Okay, so then he gets into the suspension rates. So uh, black boys have a way higher suspension rate than you know, every other race of kids in school. And if you just think about that one statistic, what ends up happening with that is... So now the, the young black males, tr- he's already made a troublemaker... And it's not there's other research on this where it's not necessarily that there, or there is not accuracy to uh, the idea that the, the young black male is actually causing more trouble. It's that the teachers and the principals and the other kids who have all been picking up on prejudices and, and biases, that they're all sort of uh, collectively delusionally believing that the young black guy is causing more trouble. Okay, so already... This is sort of saturating into his being where he's like, Oh, well, I guess I did something wrong. Or he's really confused. Well, I don't know what I did. Or understandably, he's getting really angry, like, well, What the fuck? I didn't do anything. So the suspension rates start really early. So that means even though this young black guy is not being put in prison, he's not putting in jail, he has, he has like on his permanent record in school. He's the bad kid, right? So as that advances, you get um, you go from elementary school to middle school to like, you know, and, and most kids are we're gonna I don't really know, know about most kids. A lot of kids in middle school, you hit like 12, 13, you might experiment with, uh, you might like smoke weed a little bit here and there. You might like try to steal a pack of beer from the store and and, like have a drink or drink your parents' alcohol or whatever. So as you enter into the teenage, uh, area of your development, you're naturally going to start doing a little bit of actual troublemaking. Well, who are the ones that are going to get targeted? The black guys. So, um, Dr. Wood keeps going through all these different statistics throughout his presentation then he gets to a slide called hypercriminalization, and he shows one of those statistics where, um, so it shows uh, white men ages 18 or older, uh, 1 in 106 will have some exposure to the justice system, Hispanic men ages 18 or older, 1 in 36, black mm-hmm. men 18 or older, it's 1 in 15. And I, I actually thought, I, I saw something that was more extreme than that, it was like 1 in 8 a while back, but maybe he's, he's trying to use conservative statistics to be taken seriously or something. But so, so the, the the level of the disparity is is pretty intense. And so, anybody that's familiar with, there's a black Marxist uh, political science professor. His name's Adolf Reed, and he's he's kind of a controversial guy. I appreciate uh, I appreciate him. He's, he considers himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I think I like his sort of Marxist takes and his like his class takes. But you know, he's he's generated some controversy. People say he's a class reductionist and all that kind of stuff. His take is, you know, if we only focus on the disproportionality, it's really hard at that point to to focus on like a more, ironically, I'll use the word inclusive, a more inclusive, uh, massively class-based um, coalition to end the structural problems that are sort of, that gave rise to these disproportionalities in the first place. So if you're just talking about, well, you know, look at how many black men are being um, hyper-criminalized through the school-to-prison pipeline you might start missing out on solving the issues that affect everybody disproportionately. Like if you, meaning if you, if you start coming up with solutions that are like just fixing it for like black men, well what about the native American guys who are kind of next up and then the Hispanic guys and then, and then the the poor white guys and impoverished, um, neighborhoods and such too. So, you know, I don't have a solution to this, these, these issues, but the problems are really, I mean, this is really tragic as well. Um, the a sort of robbery of uh, black youthfulness that like that, young black men due to the, the prejudices and the stereotypes and everything are then perceived as being older and bigger and scarier. So teachers and police will often uh, describe, you know, young black men in ways like he has a, a statement here to Cleveland police officers involved in the shooting in the shooting death of 12 year old Tamir Rice said so they believed the boy was much older than he was, and that Tamir reached for the toy weapon tucked in his waistband before one of the officers opened fire. So in their minds, they were like, "This is this big, scary man. When like he's just a dude. He's just this young dude, like hanging out, you know." Um, twelve the same years thing, old.
0: Tri- yeah, he was only twelve.
1: So you th- you're like, "Oh man, this tw- this this big man is coming to attack." He's like a twelve year old kid, guys. Uh, George Zimmerman. Um, he admitted at his trial, in his bail hearing, uh, that he, mis- he misjudged Trayvon Martin's age when he killed him. I thought he was a little bit younger than I am. George Zimmerman was uh, 28. Uh, Trayvon Martin was only 17. So, again, how is it that our perceptions can be this off? From there, he goes into, as a result of all these kinds of things, you get the over policing, right? So, if society as a whole starts to think black people are dangerous and scary and stuff, then okay, we gotta send in the cops to constantly be patrolling their communities. With all these issues on the micro level, you know, it's kind of it's depressing because this is just kind of what we're swimming in. Like if you're a school teacher, you work in a school like me working in community mental health. My friend who actually works with the police to train them on things like implicit bias, which I am so torn on that. I I just I don't I'm not convinced that that's helpful. But um, she was saying that the biggest issue in our community in Santa Barbara is not that the cops are over policing like black and brown neighborhoods uh, so much, but it's that, Harry, do you know the, the, the term Karen? Have you picked up on that yet? Yes. So there's this idea, like there's the Karens, there's these, there's these white women that'll see uh, a group of black and brown kids walking around just doing like young guy stuff. And they're like, Oh my God, you're suspicious. And they call the cops. Well the cops are supposed to just respond to to calls. Right. So that's another piece of this where if you have a big enough group of white people, who believe that their role is to get like state agents of the government who have big guns to drive up in their big scary cars and start talking to young groups of kids. And like, I don't know, maybe they are stoned. Like maybe that, I don't know, maybe they're up to no good, but like every little group of white kids walking around is up to no good too. This is, I mean, teenagers are just, they, they engage in high risk behaviors and stuff. So at this point, um, the, the white community members themselves who aren't aware of their biases are triggering police responses in situations where the police actually wouldn't be anyway. So my friend who who leads these trainings and she's trying to kind of reform the police in these ways, she was saying um, the implicit bias stuff with the police is one step, but you also have to educate the white community and say, look, you need to stop assuming that every time you see a black and brown youth that they're up to no good and call the cops because, you know, you you actually are one small part of the system that's resulting in the potential murder of another, um, another black kid. That's going to be another big hashtag online. And then it's going to give rise to more, you know, burning down of buildings and stuff. So, so with all that said, I want to read there, there was some research from some, some neuroscientists trying to look at the brain and figure out like, so what's actually going on in people's brains when they're engaging in even subtler forms of racism. And, found some like like sort of not helpful but interesting stuff which is the emotional parts of your brain light up when you see images or things that associate your brain with like other groups so like you're a white person you see an image of a black person the emotional centers of your brain light up a little bit more and so that means there's sort of like less juice in your brain flowing to the the, the more thinking and cognitive parts of your brain so that, that just sort of affirms like okay the, the prejudice stuff is real but what they also found was that things like implicit bias trainings and all of that don't seem to indicate at this stage that they, they reduce the level of activity of the emotional centers of the brain. So in other words, it, they're saying that they don't, they don't necessarily think that continuously cranking out education, taking implicit bias courses, taking, going to diversity trainings and things like that, that those things don't necessarily help. What they did suggest at the end of their study, and I'm sorry for not citing this study because it's in a book – um, full of essays, and I forgot to jot down the name of it. They said that what seems to help more is when people feel like they're more on a part that if they're on the same team. So mm-hmm. if you think about it this way, if you were on the same team, if you're, if you're white, and if you, when you see an image of a black person, but you have experience of we're on the same team, meaning like we are, or say we're part of a labor union, we're part of a worker co-op, or We live in the same neighborhood and we're working to improve our neighborhood by working on concrete projects together. You're just kind of naturally going to start to think, well, we're just, we're kind of the same. We have mutual shared interests. It's a lot harder for those prejudices and stereotypes to, even if that's toxically sort of what's in the air in your culture, it's harder for it to enter into your consciousness and for you to act on it. Now, the difficulty is, well, how do you, you can't just like, you can't just put people, in an extremely divided, unequal society onto the quote-unquote same team, you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. So this is kind of the dilemma I'm in, where I'm like, well, like, I'm not just going to go into like um, mostly black or Latino neighborhoods and be like, hey, guys, let's all be on the same team.
0: No, that's, but there is something happening, which I really, that puts us yeah. on the same team. I think one of the reasons that black and white together are marching in huge numbers Mm-hmm. And demonstrating is we're on the same economic team, because it isn't just blacks who are chosen to be fired. They were fired first, and they're getting hit hardest, but they're not the only one. 40 million Americans are mm. unemployed. And by this time, it's, well, the way they count, it's actually more, but okay, let's mm. say 40 million. And so people are feeling like we're on the same team. We're unemployed. We are Now that there's so many of us unemployed, the employer can say, well, look, I have to have you work extra half an hour before and after work, and you won't get more than 20 minutes lunch hour because, you know, you don't like it. Okay, there's 40 million unemployed. Bye. You know, if you allow that to happen, then you are setting people up in a class war, and I think it's a war against the working class that's why neither Germany nor France nor Italy nor any of the European countries have done it this way. They have, Germany went from 5% unemployment before COVID to 6% because no business gets any help from the German or French or Italian or any Austrian or so on, all the European governments, unless no one is fired. And unless, and then they will pay between the government will pay between 70 and 90% of that person's salary so that the economy can keep working. We don't have a strong socialist presence. We don't have powerful socialist and communist unions that make that unthinkable Mm -hmm. and to have that kind of solution. And I think. By doing that, you say you're all on the same team. And what's happened in the United States is even though blacks are suffering even worse since they're in the lowest paid jobs, delivering groceries, being in the grocery store, being on um, in the meatpacking industry and so on, everyone is suffering and we're all on the suffering working class team together. And that's been happening. The immiseration of the white working class has been going on since the end of the 70s when their jobs were exported. And I think that's what Martin Luther King was saying when he said the best anti-poverty program is a union. Because when you have black and white people together in the same boat, on the same economic team, with a class war going on against the working people of the United States, people wake up and they all feel every, I think that Hmm. image mobilized Americans because we have felt a knee on our necks since the 1970s. Before that family wages for white people allowed whites to have a reassurance that their kids could do as well or better than they white men had a servant at home doing their sex work, doing their housework, taking care of their child care, taking their emotional needs. White women had the security of being supported, and it's gone, and it's a kind of class war. And we're all in that class together, and I think that's what mobilized us.
1: You know, so I, I partially agree with you, and I think there's another part of this, though, too, because, you know, what's to say, you know, so, so the... The economic quality of life for for white people as a whole in the U.S. declining over the last fifty years, that's definitely a thing. But on the other hand, right, the the rise of this sort of fascist esque right wing stuff has also been happening at the same time. You know, which always happens. You know, Germany is like mm-hmm. the easiest easiest historical example to think of. But on the other hand, you could have all the all the white people that saw. George Floyd being murdered, the, the, you know, nine freaking minutes of just knees on his neck. Um, But I mean, but but, but all the other images and they could just they could just easily think because this is what a lot of white and it's not all white, but it's mostly white people that go like, oh, he must have done something wrong. Or, you know, there's all this weird cognitive dissonance that, you know, I don't identify with the way that person looks or what their situation is or the, or having this really weird kind of interpretation, that more like libertarian kind of thing of like, well, you got to just get rid of the state altogether and just let business, you know, let the free market decide or whatever. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, Whoa. what what do, what do you think is going to happen there? Right. Um, you're going yeah. to, you're going to, you're going yeah. to still figure out a way. Cause that's kind of what got us into this mess in the first place. Cause the other thing is that the initial formation of the police were actually slave patrols. Which was during that exact yes. same time, the plantation class was trying to figure out, well, how do we divide white and black uh, servants, undisturbed servants, slaves, whatever you want to call them, unpaid laborers, poorly paid laborers? Um, and so they said to the you know the poor white, poor white people, hey, um, here's some rifles. We're we're promoting you. This is a sort of managerial position. We're gonna have you just uh, mm-hmm. circle the plantations, go down the road, check out the other plantations, and if there's any slaves trying to escape, uh, shack them up, kill them if they try to run. You know. Uh, or, or try to bring them back if they don't you can kill them. Uh, and also you get to stay in the, the nicer rooms within the mansion or whatever and you know the white people that said oh it sounds great they became a new class they became a you know this sort of um, this earlier like middle class middle managerial class uh, that eventually evolved into the modern police force and I go back and forth in this sometimes where I'm like well I mean does that mean that the only function of police today is just to sort of create class divisions and I, you know i could feel like you can debate that but um
0: no it, i think they're they're supposed to protect property and slaves were a form of property exactly. and they are protecting property and they don't care about people and th- for the people who don't have property then they're not protecting them because right. look you know a, a class is defined by who who creates wealth for whom the people who create wealth, the people who have to work for wages and don't own wealth are the working class. The owning class are people who live off their own wealth, their stocks, their bonds, their investments in real estate. And, and that's, you know, that's a real difference. And I think the American working class is feeling the knee on our necks because mm-hmm. it is a class war. And people are realizing, uh-oh, it's a class war and I'm in the losing class here in the United States and I need to unite with everyone else in my class position and fight. And I think that's why it's black and white together in this instance.
1: That, that might be it. So the other other piece that I think I was going to say, too, is that I think it might be you know in the advent of, of cell phones and social media and the continuous bombardment of, um, just the awareness that's been forced into, uh, black people's face or white people's faces of like, look, black people do actually get killed way more fucking often than, uh, than you c- could have possibly imagined before. There's another video, there's another video, there's another video. I think with this one, cause there, you know, there were black lives matter, uh, protests before that were pretty big, but I think mm. the, the context for this too is, um, I mean, hopefully this doesn't diminish from your theory here, but like, also people are stuck at home. Like, yes, they're losing their jobs and all that. And I think, yes, they were way more upset. And there is a a general, I think, unemployed white people that just sort of, that just became like their own class. I mean, they already were their own class, but like just became their their own class of like, you're even more expendable than you even thought. That like anger Mm -hmm. at like, so the government's not taking care of me. uh, My employer didn't take care of me. Like, who the hell is supposed to take care of me? And when that was happening in this this extreme emotion dysregulation, everybody's really stressed out and everyone being afraid of like, could I die of COVID? Am I going to get put in the hospital? And, and if I get put in the hospital, like get it while I'm in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Then they saw the image of George Floyd getting killed. You're spot on with like the foundation of it, of like, um, I may not identify with George Floyd as a white person, seeing a black person get killed, but there's something – there's something outrageous about this that connects with an outrage within me about what's just happening to me and everyone else collectively. And I don't have to go to work tomorrow, so fuck yeah, I'll go to the protest, like I'll th- I'll you know, I'll yell at the cops or you know, whatever it t- maybe I'll just be a bystander, maybe I'll yell at the cops, maybe I'll throw a Molotov cocktail, I don't know. But I think <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think there are just so many conditions put in place and I do think you're correct. There's there's a huge economic piece of it. But I think huge. I think there's another. To, I think to the to the credit of the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't even. I feel like it shouldn't even be called the Black Lives Matter movement. Like the 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 movement for Black Lives. I almost think feel like is more sophisticated, especially because mm. that that particular group has like policy platforms and stuff. But this general movement, as well as a lot. There's been so much awareness raising. Most white people probably haven't read Michelle Alexander's book. Um, um, oh, the New Jim Crow. But that book inspired 13th, which is on Netflix, and Netflix is a hugely popular streaming platform that's kind of taking over people watching regular TV. And there's so much black entertainment coming out. It's not just entertainment. It's like strong, in-depth, complex narratives and documentaries about uh, the oppression of black people in the U.S. that I think more and more white people are becoming educated through. So I think there's a lot of factors. And I want to say that also just to credit um, the black activists and organizers out there who have been not necessarily organizing from like a socialist or anti-capitalist, um, perspective and mainly from a more race-based perspective saying like, look, we just need to tell our stories. We need to educate, um, white people in the community in general about our struggles. I really think they've been doing a a great job and they have made some dents in the consciousness of, of working class white people over the last, um, decade. Yes, they have.
0: And also they've, They've been allowed to publish. It isn't like they weren't telling stories before. That's a good point. The change in consciousness allows those voices to be heard. And Mm -hmm. in part it does because we are in a declining empire and we're all in, not all of us, the 99% are in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so we understand. And America is in a terrible place because the cops are supposed to hold it all together. They can't. They can't compensate for the social problems. They're out of control. You know, I was looking up the stats. Last year, over a thousand—it's a thousand forty-four or something—a thousand over a thousand people were shot, were shot and killed by police in the United States. Wow. Japan had one. Finland had one in the last seventy-one years. France had seven. I mean, wow! There's no one anywhere. Mm. Germany had five in Mm. two years, so that's two and a half a year. We are way outliers because Mm. as our empire, the second great empire to implode out of its own corruption Mm. after World War II, we were the winners. Our economy was intact. We were the kings of the world. Mm. And now we're not. And they're trying to hold on to everything as people's lives disintegrate. and. Mm. They're shooting people, and they're shooting particularly black people. And I think Americans are very angry because we've had a Mm. knee on our necks since the 1970s. It's not the same. We're harassed. American young people are beaten quite often. But we are not killed as frequently. They're killed more often, but we're in the same boat, even though some of us are getting more waves than others in that boat as we try to cross. And I think we recognize it.
1: Right. So I think, no, I think you're totally spot on. I think it's like the decline of American empire, um, you know, late stage capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. All these kind of conditions are coming together. And I think COVID ended mm-hmm. up kind of a, one of the biggest forces it would, I, I'm. I do wonder what would have happened if COVID were not going on. If the precariously employed white, working class majority. Um, we're still working in there or are right. like shitty jobs every day seeing the murder of George Floyd and going like, God, that really sucks and maybe I'll head out to one of those protests you know, there's always the protests when this happens but would there have been the numbers and would people have just stayed out day after day and like, you know what, no, we're just going to burn down this building. We don't give a shit anymore. You know, would would that have happened? So, and I, I don't want to say like... Probably not. Yeah, and I like, so I don't want to say like thank you COVID-19 but... I do think um, it just sort of exposed, it created conditions that exposed, I think, what's the consciousness and the rage that's already there. Um, Yes,
0: I also think that our country, you know, if you look at the graph of COVID, it went up with the United States and Europe. Now Europe Mm -hmm. is going down, 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 down. The United States is still up. It's the mismanagement of the disease that threw all those people out of work. Mm -hmm. Germany went one has a 1% increase in unemployment. The United States, which had 4% unemployment before COVID and now has between 15 and 20%, is in a a different position. So it's not only COVID, it's the way COVID was horribly managed by our federal government that makes people angry. What's exploding here is a result of class war against the mass of the working class of America, and also attacking black people worse as they always have been as a kind of safety valve. But there's no safety for anybody anymore, so Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. We're all in it together, and the society is beginning to recognize that, and that's why black voices who have always spoken are being heard And we're all in it together as a team, as you say,
1: which is really inspiring. And I want to put some links in the, uh, you know, when I write up the the stuff at the end, I'll put some links to the the Black Minds Matter resources for everyone, as well as a couple links by, for example, Black Socialists of America that have a very explicitly uh, socialist uh, agenda, as well as Cooperation Jackson. Um, And they, I don't even know if they use words like socialism, but- They're one of the one of the most fascinating, um, exciting projects uh, coming out of Jackson, Mississippi. An attempt to it's it's almost it may be entirely black led, but it's mostly black led. Deep South, uh, let's build a robust, long term solidarity economy that's uh, free of economic exploitation. That is uh, kind of centering that concept of you know, um, new African people are the descendants of slaves as as a part of this whole. Historical process that created race and racism, and we're trying to solve that through economic means. So, what we'll kind of we can blend in that way, like the, that micro and the macro, right? Uh, to not, not the diminish
0: cooperation,
1: yeah, cooperation yeah, in Jackson
0: in Jackson, Mississippi, which is important to note. I should send you, I'll send you another article to include. Okay, just an article, okay, yeah,
1: please, please. Okay, and if anybody wants to contact us as usual, the email address is it's not just in your head at gmail dot com and um we will invite you probably in the next month or so to become a supporter on patreon we have not launched that yet but when we do we will be inviting you to uh offer your support so we can keep the podcast going and and show us that you uh support what we're doing so thank you everyone and see you next time
0: see you next time bye